Welcome to Into the Colaverse, a podcast that takes us on the unique journeys of faculty in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Join me, your host, Frederick Luis Aldama, as we learn of the many ways that our faculty and their cutting-edge work is transforming the world today. I am so excited to be here with Lars Henriks in the English department who works on sociolinguistics. Welcome, Lars. Thank you, Frederick. This is crazy. Like, I just want to jump right in here and ask you, like, how, so what's your journey? How did you get to a PhD studying English and Creole and online communication by Jamaicans at the University of Freiburg? Um, I mean, what's how, what, I mean, it all seems so interesting to me. And then, and then how to, you finally, you know, you're at the University of Texas at Austin. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I like that a lot about my story. Why is a, uh, why is a perfectly nice boy from Germany and Texas teaching Jamaican Creole? Um, um, how did I get there? Yeah, I was, uh, studying in Freiburg, I grew up in Germany, right? And um, I was, I got my MA in, and wrote a thesis back then about a fairly dry topic, which was learning English as a foreign language using computer computers as an instructional tool. And um, I, um, my, my my advisor, my professor, so to say, invited me to write a PhD thesis. And he said, you could expand that topic into a PhD thesis. And I said, that's such a boring topic. I like that it has computers, which was new at the time. We're talking the year 2001, 2002. It was still something special to use. Uh, to write about computers as a topic, but I uh, I said every, the the other people here do they they do field work. We got one person that went to Nigeria, another that went to Jamaica, another that went to India. Um, can I do something with field work? And then he said, Well, let's let's workshop this. What about why can't why don't you do both? Um, using non-standard languages like Jamaican Creole or Patois, but in these in these new uh, newfangled media, email um, or online chat. Nobody's done that. Interesting things are happening. Why don't you do that? That's how I got to that topic. I was not a reggae fan, although I am now. Um, I was not a weed smoker. <laughs> And I'm still not. Uh, so those were not, I wasn't already a Jamaica fan, but I became one, I came to Jamaica through language. So studying the role of language in society is something that I learned about very practically because I then went to Jamaica for a few months and learned about how people use this, this dialect, which is very different from English, though English-based. And... Um, Nobody teaches you how to spell that, uh, but these native speakers in Jamaica find ways of spelling it creatively, spontaneously, and they use it in rhetorically interesting ways in code switching, which is the title of my thesis, and then the book that came out of the thesis, Code Switching on the Web, um, and it's 
There's a lot of similarities in the code switching behavior with uh, how people in other parts of the world code switch between, for example, English and Spanish or standard English and Texas English, you know, the contrasting use of codes. So anyway, <clears throat> so Lars, let me, there. Mm-hmm. let me ask you, what is an example of that? I, I, I'm curious, like Texas English um, code switching. Um, it's just off the top of your head. I don't know. <laughs> um, it, it's probably most frequent in speaking, but you'll also find it on Twitter. And I'm thinking of instances such as uh, you're telling the story in relatively standard English. Um, like I went to the football game this weekend, uh, but then some exclamation that's that's in vernacular Texas mm. English like. Sweet baby Jesus. (laughs) Oh, I see. I got it. Um, And what does this say? um, And forgive me if I'm taking you out of your kind of areas here, but what might this say about uh, education, um, our understanding of how English can be used and taught, for instance? Um, uh, A good education... um, uh, strengthens people's command of their standard language, but also uh, fosters pride in the local, in the vernacular language, in the non-standard speech. So somebody who goes through a good, nourishing, educational uh, stream comes out uh, with the ability of embracing both standard English and dialect forms or, or slang or whatever you want to call the non, the informal ways of speaking. That's mm-hmm. what that has to do with, with, uh, with speaking. And then there's some, uh, the topics that we deal with a lot uh, and that Pamelok's do with, with class and education uh, are children that come from less privileged homes, might come to school speaking more than in non-standard forms of English. So I'm thinking of, for example, African-American vernacular speech, uh, kids come to school, don't have much access or command of standard English uh, and get judged for that by the educational system. Uh, at least that is something that can happen and that's uh, fundamentally not fair. It's, it's mm-hmm. prejudging people based on their whole language and educational system. This is something that my field has been working on for the last 15 years, needs to take account of and um, kind of, uh, that, that's how every now and then there's flare-ups of these debates whether uh, vernacular speech has a place in education. So should teachers uh, use vernacular speech? The, the ebonics debate, should Ebonics, which used to be a term that was used for African-American vernacular speech, should that be uh, recognized by the educational system? Should teachers ever use uh, forms of Ebonic in trying to communicate with kids? Some linguists say it can be a really successful way of teaching the standard, teaching the standard through the use of the vernacular. 
But of course, there's stigma attached to that. Then you get these debates in the newspapers and on TV. Um, there's an infamous video of um, Oprah Winfrey from the 1990s where she's feeling and uh, speaking out against African-American necro speech, saying that's not English. That doesn't help anybody, you know? Um, so these so are Lars, things that will, yes. No, those, that's really interesting. And, you know, leads me to my next couple of questions. One is, you know, why an English department for you? You know, why is that a, a suitable, say, discipline uh, as opposed to a linguistics department? Uh, I could be in a linguistics department. Uh, at least I say so. Um, so I wouldn't be totally misplaced. But I come out of an English department back in Germany. I studied in an English department. And my specialty is varieties of English around the world. So with all these topics that linguists deal with, language and society and grammar and all that, um, I focus on the subset of those that have to do with varieties of English. So, you know, I could work on varieties of French if I wanted to, and I really want to actually work on Spanish and English in context in Texas. I just haven't gotten to that yet. But for the most part, I focus on varieties of English. And that's just something when I was, I mean, my, my uh, family is completely German, um, but English was always my favorite subject when I was going to school. And I've just never... <laughs> been interested in anything else so mm. that's why i'm in the english department well so tell me about a course like master works of literature and you teach uh in this in that in this particular course the sufferings of young Werther and also the death of ivan Illich. um how tell us tell us about master works of literature from the lars perspective yeah. Right. Yeah. So that is uh, the course we're talking about is E316, um, our big service course that anyone who studies at UT, well, unless they uh, they bring in a credit that's certain kinds of AP English, I think would qualify. But for the most part, every student at UT has to take this class as their humanities credit. And uh so I teach that course because we need to teach it. And uh, I have studied a lot of literature along my path, even though it's not my main focus in my research right now. But I've studied uh, a lot of German and English literature. And the course is, its overall purpose is to get people to read and to appreciate literature. So a big part of it is let's just have fun. That's why I put books on the syllabus that I've read and really enjoyed and that cover um, geography and periods a little bit. So that's why I start with the sufferings of young Vieta, which is from 17, 16, and uh, uh, is, uh, is like one of the prime examples of sentimentalism. It's very emotional. It's a counter-reaction to enlightenment. And so this extremely uh, 
feeling charged and then we move on to other periods where other things are important. The Ivan Illich that you mentioned this semester will be, or the summer will be the first time I'm teaching that, but that's realism, right? <clears throat> Russian realism. I love realism. I can't even really describe why, but it's so rich. Um, it's not too ideologically charged. It's a long, fairly dramatic stories. And it's a great way to get to know a different place and period. And, um, Well, like I said, I don't specialize in literature. I don't publish on literature, but I love reading this with the students, engaging in these texts, having these conversations, really just bringing it to life for the duration of a semester course. So it, it, there must be some elements here of understanding the evolution of literature in and through, uh, you know, a lens of, I don't know, let me try a couple of more technical terms like syntactic variation um, or sort of, you know, idiomatic expression. Oh, yes. Uh, and what I didn't mention is there's a bunch of Jamaican texts And um, a theme that I like to explore is diaspora. So I start with some texts that are written in Jamaica by Rastafarian poets. And then I also read uh, Jamaican poetry that's written abroad by people who emigrate from Jamaica to England. Linton Kwasai Johnson, for example, a uh, dub poet, right? And yes, since it's my specialty, I give introductions to what makes a dialect different from the standard dialect. So uh, like what, what makes Jamaican Creole different? Uh, what are some of the, uh, you know, the pronoun system? Why is that so meaningful in, in Patois and then in the specific form of Patois that is dread talk, the Rastafarian kind of Jamaican Creole. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, we come back to that again and again with different things. Um, it makes the most sense for the works that were originally written in English, so not the Russian ones. I don't know much about Russian syntax. Mm. And yeah. I also don't want don't to torture people with <laughs> talking about German syntax, even though I probably could, but uh, but for the texts that are originally English, we do talk about those things, yes. So I don't want to sort of delve too deep or far into the kind of political, but um, we do have others, uh, as you well know, like George Lakoff, famously. Um, and, well, it seems like you have a course as well on inaugural speeches of U.S. presidents. But let me ask you, is there, is there something um, that we can learn from your work that your students learn from your work to understand better, uh, I guess, the sort of, you know, the rhetoric or the rhetorical persuasiveness of one speech next to another speech? Uh, yes, I mean, I don't do political speeches in this course, but um, what I like uh, about the Masterworks of Literature course, but also in general is learning close reading and um, knowing uh, linguistic concepts and tools is really helpful uh, in doing close reading. It's like the, the 
biggest, most important weapon we have up our sleeve as English scholars, right? Knowing how to approach text up close and like seeing what's going on technically in the text. There's never just one correct answer about that, but if you look at a speech or a poem, um, you can use very similar methods to analyze those texts and uh, metaphor, as you mentioned, George Lakoff. I do that in the Masterworks class. Um, the uh, metaphors we live by, the, there's several ideas that are really important to students at that stage of their journey. You know, typically sophomores would take this class. So uh, the fact that most language is full of metaphors, um, most ways of speaking that we use draw on recurring uh, source and target domains and just the choice of domains is uh, it's really useful. Uh, whether whether you implicitly compare, compare something with a fight or a journey makes can make can make a big difference in how what you're actually saying is comes across and is framed. So um, yeah, so in that in that way, uh, poetry and uh, rap lyrics and political speeches have a lot in common and studying English. I mean, that's how I see it, that we train people, at least for part of the time, and you train them to be experts in taking that part and, uh, and mm -hmm. really making a good argument about what's in a text. Mm -hmm. Lars Henriks, as a, it's obviously you were a big, big reader as a kid growing up. Um, but there's something very detail oriented about your your particular specialization and yes. i just wondered is there something were you that kid that i don't know obsessed over you know the trail of ants as they carried the crumbs to the to their nest uh, i am just thinking here the the young lars and this incredibly okay. sort of statistically syntactically oriented detailed yes. mind here yes <laughs> um uh, maybe i remember uh being really uh, uh yeah i remember playing i remember being really happy with like when you're in flow playing with uh you know building building things in the yard and uh building landscapes uh, at home. Um, I did always read a lot. And the analyzing part came later when I studied, though. And the whole idea of pursuing grad school and pursuing this as a career, that came entirely from my experiences of studying in the United States as a um, visiting student. So when I was 16, I came to Alabama for one year. I stayed with the host family in, in Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, started appreciating this American way of it's more project-based learning where you're more on your own. But you don't always do that in the American context, but you can. There's usually room for that. And then that was a big deal when I came back as a Fulbright student. When I was 24, I went to the University of North Carolina for a year. 
Um, and I love the courses there where, where like we had a class topic. Um, this was early days of uh, digital humanities learning. I was already studying English, but we did like, let's read McTeague, McTeague and um, uh, let's make a website about it. And uh, every student take on a topic and mm-hmm. produce part of that website. I love that. We weren't doing that very much in Germany. Um, you know, while university in Germany is very good and has a lot of strengths and <laughs> most of First of all, it's free to to study at the public universities in Germany. Um, they, they don't have the bandwidth to do that much independent mm. project based learning, and we did that, and I loved that, and that really made me want to go to graduate school. Mm. Well, that's a that's a wonderful, you know, advertisement really for our students here at UT, um, students yes. in general in the U.S. to get. Get get their passports and get on one of those, uh, you know, uh, you know, study abroads because it's not just, of course, what happens in the classroom, Lars, as you well know. It's yeah. uh, being exposed to something so radically different culturally. And for you, I'm sure the sounds, the different sounds of English in mm-hmm. Alabama, um, et cetera, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, up until... My at the age of 16, when I went to Alabama, I had had English teachers who were either who were either from England or had learned their English in England. So that was a bit of a difference. I do remember finding out for myself that words like ham or can't or dance uh, can be the vowels can be trifungal as if you know one <laughs> you want any more ham. I can't. I like mm-hmm. dance. I think I thought that's a little different than what I learned back in Europe, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was fascinated by that. And then you you could talk to the speakers about it, and you notice the information you get is usually incomplete or anecdotal. So most people have thoughts about language, but the thoughts are usually like little cartoonish and they have stories about how another person said something or, or they, they'll say, you should hear so-and-so. Um, they speak, speak really, <laughs> their accent is really strong or, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. Um, but the, the fact that there's systematic regularities underlying things like dialect and accent um, is something that, really takes study to find out and uh yeah good when i was yeah lars that's it's really really uh incredible you've taken us on such a wonderful journey right now as we wrap this up i have a one question for you which is for our listeners our you know for the audiences in general from for your students when they ask you um as i'm sure they do um, why why does it matter? Why does this kind of very careful understanding of the layers, the the vitality of language and its study in literature, but also in everyday practice, why does it matter? I think we were just there at a point that takes us to exactly that question. So uh, I would put it this way: the things 
that uh, people notice in everyday life about language and that the things that you uh, recognize through careful study of the systematicities in language can be quite different, especially since as a species, we like to generalize and judge. But when our data is incomplete and we judge based on uh, impressions, then mm. the, the judgments can be a little off or there's a lot of myths about language. Uh, there's a lot of ideas about dialect and non-standard speech that are that, that linguists uh, are, are not excited about and in fact uh, want to steer people away from. So uh, mm. the main thing being if you speak non-standard language, that's not because you are deficient. Um, in fact, the that idea is common, right? Speaking negatively about non-standard speech um, is kind of everywhere, as in, oh my God, I hate that accent or whatever. Mm. <laughs> it, that's just very common. And then it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a short step from saying I hate that accent to uh, people who speak that accent are awful and um, privileges in society are distributed along those opinions more frequently than we realize. That's why yeah. that matters. Yeah, no, absolutely. So many times, uh, I can't tell you how many times as a, first of all, as a, my, my first language being Spanish and having immigrated from Mexico as a kid being judged. Um, in other words, the sense that the way we express ourselves through language has a somehow a direct link to our brain capacity, but the prejudice that inserts itself into that equation everywhere. It's just, it's, it's just mind-boggling. But we see it in the mainstream. We see it in the news constantly. People judging others in and through the use of their language, whether it's, a, you know, a, an accent, a certain perhaps slowness in the rhythms and articulation, or as you mentioned, the kinds of uh, very natural, you know, code switchings that happen in many of our communities. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in the media, right? Mm -hmm. It's also how politicians are judged. This politician is good because mm. <clears throat> right, right. There's a, some of my colleagues published a book about, um, Obama and how people when he first came up and people were saying, Oh, he speaks so well, you know, mm. he's so articulate. <laughs> in mm. fact, Biden said that about Obama in the early days. Oh, he's so articulate. Mm. Um, that's a, you know, that's a positive, um, the positive side of that coin, but it should be clear how quickly that can be turned around to say that somebody doesn't speak well and therefore isn't worthy of such and such. He shouldn't be a leader mm. or, you know, the, the, uh, the arguments they're making aren't valid and things like that. Yeah. yeah. That, the weapon, the weaponizing of language, just as we saw with, with um, other yeah. things. Lars, this has been absolutely a delight. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to share your, your knowledge, your journey, your expertise with us. And yeah, thank you, Lars. And I'm so grateful, uh, first, that you talked to me, and second, that you're doing this. I think this is great.
um, that you're uh, highlighting our work and I was very happy to be part of it. Thank you, Frederick. Thank you, Lars. Into the Colaverse is produced by the University of Texas at Austin's College of Liberal Arts. Sound engineering by the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services. You can find Into the Colaverse podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening and see you next time.